This message was presented at the GYC 2012 conference in Seattle, Washington. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. Our Father in heaven, we thank you so much for this morning. We thank you for renewing your mercy and your grace. And Lord, I am just but a mortal man, also in need of you, and I just pray that you will speak through me, that you will hide me in the cleft of the rock, and that I may not be seen, Lord, but that you would be lifted up, that you will draw our hearts to you as we study the plan of salvation, and as we see it through the sanctuary, that we will follow you each and every step, and that you will send the Holy Spirit in a mighty way, open our ears and our hearts to not only receiving, but to experience these truths personally in each one of our lives is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. You see, if we want to understand more about conversion, this character transformation, it really boils down to us following Jesus everywhere He goes. And the Bible tells us in Revelation 14 that at the end of time, there will be a group of people the 144,000 in Revelation 14 that follow the Lamb everywhere. And so my question to us today, where is the Lamb? And where has the Lamb been? Because if my experience, if my conversion is a character transformation through the power of God, and if you think of the Acts revolution, their revolution was because they experienced Christ personally. The disciples had a personal experience and then that experience was spread throughout the then known world. But even that experience that they had in the book of Acts did not really start there. It really started with their time being with Jesus those three three and a half years that Jesus was there ministering and the disciples were following. That's where the revolution began. It began with Christ. But this revolution was not just all of a sudden just took place. This was something that God had foretold many thousand years before. This revolution of Jesus Christ coming to the earth is actually something that we're going to be looking at today as we look at the sanctuary message. I believe that the sanctuary foretold even the great revival and the revolution that took in the book of Acts. And so that is our purpose today, is to look and follow the footsteps of Jesus. Not just through the book of Acts, but as it is foretold in God's sanctuary. Why is this so important? If you come with me to Psalms 77, look at what the Bible has to say in verse 13. Thy way, O God, is where? In the sanctuary, who is so great a God as our God. So if I want to follow God, if I want to be a faithful Christian, And I want to experience this transformation. One of the greatest places to find God is right there in the sanctuary. And of course, we're going to be looking at the earthly sanctuary, but all of it really points to God fulfilling that which is in heaven and what He's doing right now for us. And so we're going to be following the sanctuary because there we find the footsteps of Jesus. And you know how that poem goes, the footsteps? There was two footprints, sets of footprints on the sand. And then all of a sudden, there was only one. And the man asked the Lord, Why God? Why am I by myself? There's only one set of footprints. And then God told him that it wasn't you walking. I actually picked you up and I carried you through. And I believe the sanctuary is that exact message. God is showing us how Christ himself walked and how we need to be following him. But at the same time, we cannot do it in our own strength. God has to pick us up and take us, but we need to be willing. And so, as we journey through the sanctuary, you come with me thousands of years ago in the dusty wilderness. And there we see that God tells Moses to build this earthly, temporal structure. And this structure is pretty much composed of three main sections, which we know of as the courtyard. And then inside the tabernacle, you have the holy and the most holy place. 
But before we get into those sections and follow Christ through each one, I want to first look at the encampment. I believe for us to understand conversion, conversion does not start necessarily in the courtyard, even though oftentimes that's where we focus in the beginning. I believe actually conversion starts in the encampment. And the reason why I say that, because the Bible has said that we are all like what? Sheep, right? Oh, who came also as a sheep for us? Look at what the Bible tells us in Isaiah 53, verse 7. He was what? Oppressed and was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a what? Lamb to the slaughter, as a sheep before his shears is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. What is this prophecy about? Who is this pointing to? This is pointing to Christ. And it's using the illustration, the analogy of a lamb being brought to the slaughter. But before a lamb can be brought to the slaughter, he needs to be what? Born, right? He has to live some life. Oh, where did Jesus live? On earth. This prophecy not only is describing the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, but before he could sacrifice, he had to become like one of us. So I see the first experience that we need to have is to behold the Lamb of God, not only at the cross, but the whole life. Because Christ wanted to dwell with men. He wanted to be with us. If you come with me to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 verse 3. Paul describes how Christ became a man. Romans chapter 8 and verse 3. You know, even John the Baptist recognized that Jesus was that Lamb of God. And he called Jesus the Lamb even before Jesus was beginning his ministry. Jesus had not even been baptized at that point. And John was, the Baptist was already saying that Jesus is that Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God. And look at what Paul tells us about how Jesus came into this world. In Romans chapter 8, verse 3, it says, What the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemned sin in the flesh. Jesus, God Himself, came to be like one of us. He came like a sheep. We are all like sheep. And we, sheep, need to be led. And so, God sent His only Son to come in the likeness of sinful flesh. He came like you and I with sinful flesh. And that word likeness used to trip me up a lot because I was like, oh, that means He's not really like us. He's somewhat like us, but not really. But then when you actually look at the original language, that the beginning part of that word in the Greek is actually the word homo. The same word that we saw begins the word confession in the Greek as well and which means to have the same. So basically, Jesus had the same nature, but Hebrews tells us that He never sinned at all. And so Jesus is our example, and just like we saw yesterday, our conversion begins as we receive a revelation of God. So God wants us to spend time beholding the Lamb there in the, in the encampment, the life of Jesus Christ. It is interesting from there, that we have to go in to the sanctuary. But what is the only route into the sanctuary? What's the only route? Can I jump the fence? No, you're not supposed to. You're not supposed to dig a hole through. What are you supposed to do? You're supposed to go through the gate. The gate is the only entrance into the sanctuary. Likewise, who is the gate? Jesus Christ is that gate. You see, it is very interesting to me that as we established earlier, Jesus is also described as a sheep. And one day, I was uh, working in San Francisco, in in our local church there, and there was, um, we were doing some remodeling and construction, and trying to make, beautify the church a little bit, and I was working with one of the the men there, and uh, he's a very faithful church member, using his talents, and uh, he mentioned to me that he used to be a shepherd. And I thought, wow, I had never met a shepherd before. I mean, how many of you just out of the blue meet shepherds? 
And um, especially in the Silicon Valley, you expect doctors and uh, you know, all the technological world. But here is this man that is a carpenter now, but he was a shepherd. And he started telling me that they used to have a pen, a corral of sheep. And they would let them graze out, but then they would have to bring them back in in the evening. And the gate that these sheep would have to go through was only 14 inches wide. And that's not very, that's not very wide at all. That's actually just about a little over a foot. And so the problem is, though, sheep have to be led. It, the, the first sheep doesn't just go into the pen. And so what the shepherd would do is he would pick up the sheep, the first one, and walk into the gate. And then, you know what would happen to the rest of the sheep? They would all line up and follow. And this way, they all had to be in single file. And then I thought to myself, is that not like the sanctuary? Jesus, the Lamb of God, lived this perfect life. He showed us how to live on this earth. And He Himself is the gate, walks through the gate, and he sacrificed himself, which we're going to be looking at, is at the altar of burnt sacrifices. And so God has so many beautiful analogies that he's given to us. And so there we find that Jesus wants us to follow him, not only in the encampment and through the gate, the only way to salvation, but now to the altar of burnt sacrifices. And so the second step in our conversion experience is going to be the experience of the courtyard. And the courtyard experience I'm going to show you really teaches us about justification by faith or being justified by faith. And you probably heard this terminology and you maybe got overwhelmed. Man, what is all these words, justification and sanctification? You maybe have heard even some controversies about these topics. But we're going to make it, try to make it very simple today. That in the courtyard is this experience of being justified by faith. This first piece of furniture within the courtyard is the altar of burnt sacrifices. And an interesting fact is that this piece of furniture was made out of shittim wood or acacia wood, depending on the translation. And the reason why I bring that up is because that type of bush or tree that is used to build this is actually a thorny bush. And why is that so interesting? Because this piece of furniture represents the sacrifice of Christ. And when he was on the cross, what was put on his head? A crown of thorns. You'll find that all the symbolisms for the fulfillment of Christ are right there in the sanctuary. It's so beautiful. And that even the actual sacrifice, it was actually suspended. It, was, it didn't just drop to the bottom of this altar of burnt sacrifice, it was suspended by a grate. And wasn't Jesus suspended as well? Was he touching the ground? Was he flying up in heaven when he was on the cross? Not at all. He was suspended by that cross. And so we see that this is a beautiful description of the fulfillment of Jesus Christ. And there, the sinner was to bring his lamb. He was to walk through the gate when he realized that he had sinned against God that his sins had separated. He was to bring a lamb that was to represent Jesus Christ and he was to put it on the altar. And with the priest, he was going to lay his hand on that lamb, representing the transferring of his sins to the Lamb of God. And that is what we described yesterday as confession and repentance, right? That after we've experienced the revelation of Jesus Christ, we've been convicted. Now we need to confess. we got to take our sins and tell the Lord. He already knows them. But I'm agreeing with God about my sins. And I'm placing them on Jesus Christ there at the foot of the cross. We are told in Christ's object lessons about this experience of confession. The nearer we come to Jesus... And the more clearly we discern the purity of His character, the more clearly we shall see the exceeding what? Sinfulness of sin. So the closer we get to the cross, the closer we get to the life of Jesus, the Lamb of God, what happens? The more we see our sinfulness. But that is not to despair. And the less shall we feel like exalting ourselves, there will be a continual reaching out of the soul after God. 
you'll see that most of these quotes talk about continuing our experience. Not just experience at once, but continually. A continual, earnest, heartbreaking confession of sin and humbling of the heart before Him at every what? Advance. At every advance. So just because maybe you've sinned or God reveals something to you, it doesn't mean your experience is faulty. You just got to keep being humble and allowing the goodness of God to transform our hearts and to realize how dependent we are upon God at every advanced step in our Christian experience, our repentance will deepen. We shall know that our sufficiency is in who? Christ alone and shall make the apostles confess our own. I know that in me that is in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. This is the experience of that altar of burnt sacrifices that God wants to give us. If you also come with me to Romans chapter 5, look at what the Bible tells us is the experience when we receive the blood of Christ. In Romans chapter 5 and verse 9, look at what the Bible tells us. Much more than being now what? Justified by how? His blood. We shall be saved from wrath through Him. So there in the sanctuary we see that lamb, not only was the individual to put his hand on the, the lamb of God, referring to the sins being transferred, but the lamb was to be slain. Blood had to be spilt. Why? It is so that we can be justified. And we're going to be looking in more detail what this word justified means. But as you can see already, the first article of furniture is describing the process of justification. But before we get into describing more about justification, let us go to the second piece of furniture there in the courtyard. We find this brass-looking object called the laver. And the laver, you can find and read about it on your own spare time in Exodus 30, verses 18 to 21. It describes all the unique features of what it looked like. And the purpose of this laver was to be filled with water. And they were to wash both their feet and their hands, the priest, before doing the sacrifice and after doing the sacrifices. And it is interesting that this laver in Exodus 38 verse 8 was made out of brass mirrors. The way they were able to build this was they gathered all the mirrors that women had. And... Uh, you know, men don't usually, aren't usually the ones in, carrying in their briefcases mirrors. So in the olden times, that was also the same thing. It was the women that had these mirrors. And the mirrors back then were made out of brass. They polished it very nice that you could see your reflection. And that's what the whole, the, the, the part of the labor was made out of, these brass mirrors. But what is the significance of this? Come with me real quickly to the book of James, chapter 1. James chapter 1, look at what the Bible tells us in verse 23. Just right after the book of Hebrews, and I'll be flying through these Bible texts because we have so much to cover, but James chapter 1 and verse 23, you can jot it down. For if any be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like unto a man beholding his what? A natural face in a glass. And then later on in verse 25, but whosoever looketh into the what? Perfect law of liberty. So that mirror is like someone looking into what? The perfect law of liberty. Why would God use mirrors to build this lever? Because what does a mirror do? How many of you looked at a mirror this morning? Yes, it shows you your condition. When I woke up this morning and looked at the mirror, there were some things that I had to fix. My hair was dented in one side and, you know, I had to take a shower. The mirror showed me my condition. Can the mirror cleanse me? No. So likewise, the mirror represents the law of God. It shows me my true condition. And it is a, a revelation of God's character. The more I behold God's character and His law, the more I realize my need for cleansing. The cleansing is not in the mirror, but it is in the water that is contained therein. And that water 
Jesus said himself that we need to be born of what? Water and of the Spirit. And if you come with me real quickly to Romans chapter 6, the Bible describes, Paul himself describes, what this watery baptism really represents. And I have alluded to it already. There in Romans chapter 6, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and then Romans chapter 6, the Bible tells us in verses between 2 and 9, we'll go ahead and read verse 3. Know ye not that so many of us, as were baptized into Christ, were baptized into His what? Death. So baptism represents a death to the old man. When I realize my condition, when God has revealed Himself to me, what do I need to experience? Death to the old man. That's part of that confession and repentance process. And then it tells us, Therefore we are buried with Him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also walk in the newness of life. So here, this labor filled with water represents the death of the old man, but also the resurrection of the old man in Jesus Christ. And just like we saw the altar represented the death of Jesus, this labor is the fulfillment of Jesus' resurrection. So God is giving us beautiful symbol. Jesus died on the cross. He wants us to follow Him, confess our sins. And He wants us to experience the washing of our sins by the power of God. And there we find not only the death of Christ represented, but the resurrection of Jesus represented. God doesn't want to leave us in our sins. He wants us to resurrect us in the newness of life. If you come with me to Romans chapter 4. Romans This is the wrong text, but let's go there. Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4, verse 25. Look at what the Bible tells us about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who was delivered, referring to Jesus, for our offenses, and was raised again for our what? Justification. So, Jesus being raised, which is described there in the labor, is for our justification. Just like what else was for our justification? The blood. So as we see already, that whole process of the courtyard is describing justification. In Faith and Works, page 103, the servant of the Lord told us, As the penitent sinner contrite before God discerns Christ's atonement in his behalf, what he did on the cross for us, and accepts this atonement as his only hope in this life, the future life, his sins are what? Pardoned. This is what? Justification by faith. Here we are told that justification by faith is connected with experiencing pardon, or in other words, for forgiveness. I'm going to show you from the Bible how this is true. Every believing soul is to conform his will entirely to God's will. That's what the whole experience of the cross is about. Us taking up the cross, sacrificing, surrendering my will to God and accepting Christ's atonement for me and keep in a state of repentance and contrition, exercising faith in the atoning merits of the Redeemer and advancing from strength to strength, from glory to glory. And then in Faith I Live by, page 116, the righteousness by which we are justified is imputed or it is granted to us. This is our what? Our title to heaven. This is the only way we get to heaven. We got to go through the gate and experience the justification found on the cross and in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There is no other means. This is our title to heaven. So what biblically is justification? In Job chapter 25 verse 4, the Bible tells us, how then can a man be what? justified with God, or how can he be what? Clean that is born of a woman. The Bible is connecting here that to be justified is someone that is to be clean. What does it mean to be clean in the Bible? Look at what the Bible tells us in in Jeremiah chapter 33 verse 8, and I will what? Cleanse them from all their what? Iniquities, whereby they have sinned against me, and I will, what is that word? Pardon. So the word justified means to be what? Cleansed. 
But now cleansing has to deal with being forgiven or pardoned. That's why the servant of the Lord said that pardon and justification are the same thing. And I will pardon all their iniquities whereby they have sinned and whereby they have transgressed against me. This is the experience that God is describing there. There are many texts. You can even jot this down in Numbers 14, 19. The Bible clearly describes that pardon is forgiveness of sins. You see, we cannot pardon ourselves. This is something that God has to do. So the pardoning part is God's job. But my job is simply just to confess. God is doing the rest, and He's already the one initiating that experience. And then, not only are we to confess, but if God has forgiven me, I need to turn away from those things. And in Isaiah 55, 7, the Bible tells us, let the wicked forsake his way, let him return to the Lord, and he will abundantly pardon. It doesn't matter how wicked you are, doesn't matter what you have done, there is insufficient pardon in the blood of Jesus. I, I don't know about you, but as you may have read in my description for this seminar about my life, one of the turning points in my experience was when I realized how powerful and merciful Jesus is. And I had grown up in the church for some time, and I had kind of gone with the flow, and I had a good exterior, but inside my heart was wicked. My sister was even getting baptized this one day, and I remember the day so very well. We went to church, we finished, we were going to eat with some of our friends, and they happened actually to be here today, which was a pleasant surprise. And we were, eat, we were going to go eat with our friends at the, to have a picnic after church, and then go to the, the next meeting in the afternoon and the baptism. Oh, our friend's car got stolen that day, and so we ended up just eating at the basement of the church, and then our friend asked me, do you want to go for a walk? And I told him, no, I'm not really sure about that. But at the same time, I was willing to do anything, and so I did. And, you know, and I think I remember her saying something like, you know, it's good to, uh, for our digestion, so let's go for a walk. And so we did. And a couple blocks into our walk, I started feeling convicted, or I just felt very uneasy. And I remember telling Shami, can we go back? And I remember saying, are you sure? And I said, yeah, I don't know why, but I feel, and we had only, literally was one a couple blocks. We hadn't even gone very far. And so we, did, we went back, and as soon as we got back, all of a sudden, when we got to the corner of the church, I heard this loud cry of anguish. Don't kill me, don't kill me. And I was like, what is going on? And then all I saw was a car coming in our direction. They rolled down the window, and they have a gun pointed in our direction. And this young man that came from the from this alley was running between us and I was freaked out of my wits and to tell you the truth I I didn't even think about God at that moment here I just been to church my sister is getting baptized I was already baptized and my I did not experience really Christ in my heart and so I didn't even think about God and and the young man was running between us trying to protect himself he even tried to open the side door of the church and it would not open and the interesting thing is later on the police came and we actually, the door was open. It was just very interesting how things worked out. But nevertheless, and I remember looking back and there my friend Shami was and she was saying, Philippe, stop, don't run. And I'm thinking, you're crazy. If we don't run, we're going to get shot. This is the south side of Chicago. But I'll never forget, she looks up to heaven and she says, Lord, I don't remember the exact words, but something along the lines, Whatever you do, please spare this young man. And even if you have to take my life, please give him another chance. Give him life so that he can get to know you. And this was the young man we'd never met before. And I thought, she is so crazy to tell you the truth. When I think about the experience, I was like, I don't understand. Why would you say such a thing? But there was something I could not deny. The peace that I saw in her face was something I did not have at that moment. And I was scared out of my wits. And when I looked back the last time, all I remember, the sun was still shining, but there was a glow behind her. I can't really describe it because it wasn't light. She doesn't even know that it was a glow. But there was some type of glow. And when I went to go look at the gunman, this was all within maybe 30, 45 seconds. It was so fast. There I saw the gunman, and 
I just heard the screeching tires and the gunman disappeared. And the police came later and the young man eventually went into the alley and next thing we know he came up in, uh, in a truck. He must have come with his friend or something. And he was grateful for the encounter with us. Of course, it wasn't us, it was God. But that night, I'll never forget, I was crying and crying and crying because I realized I should be a dead man. All of us here should be dead men. How many of you have sinned? I know I have. If you just sin once, you require, the law requires death. But because of Jesus, you and I are still breathing. And then I realized, you know, I should be a dead man. What am I doing just living my own life? And it's when I saw the love of Jesus, and then I said, Lord, please forgive me. And for the, maybe one of the first times, I fully poured out my heart to God. And I experienced in God's pardon for me. That's what God wants us to experience there in the altar of burnt sacrifices and in the labor, there in the courtyard experience. What is the condition of justification? How do I access this justification? As we read earlier, pardon and justification are one and the same. Faith in Works 103. We are told in Romans chapter 5, verse 18, even so by the righteousness of one, the what? Free gift came upon all men unto what? Justification. How is justification given to us? As a free gift. Justification, pardon, forgiveness of sins, being cleansed, is making, is a gift that God gave. What do you have to do to receive a gift? Nothing. It's free. So what's the only thing you have to do? You have to accept it. You've got to accept that gift. That's what God has done for us. The condition to justification is to receive this gift. We are told in Romans chapter 5. Oops. Romans chapter 5 and verse 1. Romans chapter 5 verse 1. Therefore being justified again by what? Faith. Since justification is a gift, we can only... Receive it by faith. The way I accept it is to have faith, to believe that God has granted us, that we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We are told in selected messages. This thing is acting strange. In Selected Messages, page 389, faith is the what? Only condition upon which justification, or what we're talking about, forgiveness, pardon, can be obtained. And faith includes not only what? Belief, but also trust. In James, the Bible tells us that even the devils believe. You know, I used to think believing in Jesus was enough. Oh, you know how many, you know how many devils believe in Jesus? They all do. They know that He's the Son of God. They know that he can pardon sin. That's why they work so hard, so that we don't believe in that. So not only are we to believe, we got to be better than the devil. God wants to take us higher, but he wants us to trust. So justification is not only accepting the gift, it is having faith in the gift, but it's actually trusting that God will give us this experience. And that's why it is called the justification by faith. In Romans chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. But to him that worketh not, but he believeth on him that what? Justified the ungodly. His faith is counted for what? Righteousness. So in this experience of justification, not only is God forgiving you, cleansing you from your sins, but what is being imparted or counted to you? Righteousness. So part of justification is God taking your filthy junk, your filthy rags, and giving you the righteousness of Jesus. Because we exercise, we accept the gift, and we exercise faith in the gift, God counts it for righteousness. Is there even virtue in our faith? No. Faith is just a gift that God has also given to us. 
but he accepts that because he knows we don't have anything to offer. But when we accept the gift and we allow him to transform our life, he counts it for righteousness. So justification is this process of taking away our sins and giving us the righteousness of Christ. We are told in SDA Bible Commentary, Volume 6, the grace of Christ is freely to justify the sinner without merit or claim on his part. Justification is what? A 25%. 90%? How much? Full! How much? How much is full? It's 100%. Like this bottle is full? It's 100% full to the brim. Well, actually, this bottle is not quite to the brim. I can see the top a little bit. But with God, there's no cheating on us on that. It's complete. It's full, complete. Part of it. The moment a sinner accepts Christ, by how? By faith. That moment he is forgiven. But how many of us have asked God for forgiveness? We're praying. We're pouring out our God our hearts, and sometimes we get up and we don't feel forgiven. Have you felt that before? I have. Does that mean that God has not forgiven us? That's not true. That's right. God has forgiven us. It's just, we don't, we go live by faith. Faith is not always us actually feeling it. Sometimes you'll feel it, but sometimes you won't. But faith will claim the promises. The righteousness of Christ is what? Imputed to him and he is no more to doubt God's forgiving grace. That moment forward, you can be assured that you've been accepted by God and he has given you the righteousness of Christ and you live like that. Live as though it has been done for it has been done by God. You see, the result of justification is this complete forgiveness and the receiving of the righteousness of Christ. But what is the result? Romans 5.1, therefore being justified by faith. We have what? Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. What is the purpose of being justified? So that we can have what? Peace. You see, after sin, after Adam and Eve committed that sin there in the Garden of Eden, did they have peace with God after that? No. There was guilt, there was shame, there was all these things, there was this experience of enmity between them and God. When we sin likewise, when we make that choice, we have also separated us from God, but it's through this courtyard experience, justification, that we are restored into that relationship with Jesus. But it's got to be moment by moment. Because at any moment, if we turn our eyes away from Christ, what's going to happen to us? We'll sink just like Peter did when he turned his eyes away from Christ when he was walking on water. We too will sink. So we need to keep experiencing this justification, this complete pardon. God wants to restore his complete relationship with us. The last quote in this section. We are told in Faith and Works, page 103, one of the great books on this topic is the book of Faith and Works by Ellen Wine. I recommend you to read it as well as steps to Christ and the sanctified life. Pardon and justification are one and the same. Through faith, the believer possesses, passes from the position of a what? Rebel. Before this experience, we're enemies. We're rebels. We're going against God. But yet, does God give up on us? He doesn't. A child of sin and Satan. Can you believe this? We're a child of Satan. To the position of a loyal what? Subject of Jesus. That's why it breaks God's heart when we have a form of godliness, but we're still working for Satan. And Satan loves that because if we can put a costume saying we're a Christian, but deep within my heart, I'm unconverted, Satan laughs like, I gotcha. And he rubs it in God's face. You see, you say you pardon them, but they're not experiencing that. But yet, if we experience this, God, we become part of of Jesus Christ, not because of an inherent what? Goodness, it's not anything in me but because Christ received them as his child by adoption. What a beautiful picture. The sinner receives the forgiveness of sins because these sins are borne by the substitute. And then jumping down, thus man pardoned, clothed with the beautiful garments of what? Christ's righteousness stands faultless before God. This process of justification is when you ask for forgiveness, God looks at you as though you've never sinned. You are faultless before the throne. But why? Because he looks at you as though you have the, as you have the covering 
of Jesus Christ's righteousness. This same shepherd that I told you in the beginning, this shepherd was also telling me that sometimes the ewes, the female sheep, they have children. And when they have these children, some of them live and some of them die. And some of them are even rejected by the mother. And do you know what the shepherd has to do so that she can accept the rejected ones? He takes one of the dead lambs that had just been born but died, didn't make it. He skins the lamb and takes the blood and the skin of, the, of that lamb and puts it on the rejected lamb. And then you know what the mother does? She sniffs the one and she acts as though that's the one. And so she treats the rejected one as though it's also hers. Is that not what God does with us? Because of sin, we've been separated from God. But because when we confess and Christ's righteousness covers us, God the Father looks at you and I, though we've never sinned before. We are clean before God, faultless. I don't know about you, but I don't feel faultless. But by faith, I'm faultless. I can experience that mentality today. But the sanctuary experience does not stop here. Is that all the sanctuary? That's just the courtyard. <laughs> we got to get into the tabernacle itself, composed of the, the holy place and the most holy place. And in the holy place, you see the experience of being sanctified by faith. Just like you and I saw that justification is our title to heaven. Sanctification is just as important as well. In faith I live by, page 116, he who is being sanctified by the truth will be self-controlled and will follow in the footsteps of what? Christ. The whole process of the sanctuary is following the footsteps of Jesus. Until grace is lost in what? Glory. That means in the character of God. The righteousness by which we are sanctified is what? Imparted. Is our what? Fitness to heaven. So justification is our title, but what keeps us on the path is being sanctified. You can't separate the two. I know earlier in my childhood, even when I was in high school, I was struggling. Only justification. No, then just sanctification. Then it goes to these extremes. We have to have them together. You can't have one without the other. One is the title, the other one is, our fit, is, is the fitness. Let's look at from the Bible, what is the definition of sanctification? First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23, And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. That means completely. And I pray God, your what? Whole spirit and soul and your whole being, mental, physically, spiritual, everything about you shall be what? preserved what? Blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So being sanctified is connected with what? Being preserved blameless. So to be sanctified is to be preserved blameless. See, God has made you faultless now through justification. But do you still have the choice to sin? At any point in your experience, until the close of probation, we can change our minds. We can say, you know what, God? Forget you. The world looks more appetizing right now. But what keeps me on the path is sanctification. It keeps me on this walk with the Lord. It preserves me. Sanctified. The word itself means to be set apart for the holy use. Even in John 17, verse 15 to 17, Jesus himself tells them, or he's praying in his prayer and he tells them, sanctify them through the truth. But just before that, he talks about keeping his disciples from evil and all of us. He's praying to the Father and he says, Lord, please keep them from evil and sanctify them through the truth. Sanctification is keeping us from evil. But it also means in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 21, if a man therefore purge himself from these, he shall be a vessel unto honor sanctified and meet for the master's use and prepared for what? Every good work. So not only is God preserving us, 
But just as we saw with justification, not only God calling us out of sin, but now He's going to preserve us in this experience. So now we got to walk with Jesus. Where Christ is being put on us, we got to follow Him. And He's preparing us unto every good work. So part of sanctification is being meat for the Master's use. Is God using you and I? And that's why the last three parts of our seminar on conversion is going to do how I relate to people. How does God equip me to reach others? Because I believe, as we saw yesterday, conversion is not just my experience. It's got to be continued as I disciple and train others and point them to Jesus Christ and being prepared unto every good work. So we see that sanctification is also connected with God doing His good work through us. Our high calling, page 212. What is sanctification? We saw from the Bible. Let's see what Ellen White says, the servant of the Lord. It is to give oneself what? Holy and without reserve, soul, body, and spirit. It's almost like she's quoting in her own words, Second Thessalonians. To deal justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with God. Doesn't this sound like good works? This is the character of God. And to know and to do the will of God without regard to self or self-interest. Why? Because it's been crucified where? At the cross. So if I'm going to keep walking with Jesus, I don't bring my old man with me because he was set apart at the cross. When I confessed my sins, to be heavenly minded, pure, unselfish, holy, without spot or without stain. Sometimes when we read these quotes, we think, how in the world can I experience? There's no way I can be like this. The reason why we feel that is because we're looking to ourselves. Jesus never told us to do it on our own. The only way is by accepting the blood of Jesus. Walking through that gate, experiencing that baptism of water and of the Spirit. And through that experience, by the grace of God, He will keep us sanctified. He will keep us preserved. By what means are we sanctified today? We're going to look at several from the Bible. The first, how are we sanctified? Hebrews chapter 13, verse 12. Wherefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his what? Blood suffered without the gate. Where did we see the blood? In the sanctuary. In the cross, right? At the altar of burnt sacrifice, the lamb being slain. But how is it possible that sanctification is with the blood? I thought, didn't you, Philippe, didn't you just say that sanctification is the, the holy place experience? Yes, I did. So, how did we get blood there? You see, what happens is, the priest would take the blood from the sacrifice and take it into where? The holy place. You see, without the blood... The holy place experience doesn't mean anything. He's got to transfer the blood of the saints. It's on Christ now, and Christ represents us before God. And so our sanctification is reliant. It is based on our experience of justification. It is, on, it is by the blood of God. In Acts chapter 26, verse 18 to open their eyes and to turn from darkness and light and from the power of Satan to God, that they might receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are justified by what? Faith that is where? In me. And you know who's talking here? This is Jesus talking to Paul. This is Paul's testimony, like we saw yesterday. What does he say? The faith that is in me. How are we sanctified by the blood of Jesus? The faith of Jesus. Here are the patience of the saints, that patience here that keep the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus. The faith is the same faith that Jesus has. So we are to experience the blood and the second thing that gives us access to the sanctifying experience is the faith of Jesus Christ. But then we find, now we're going to get into the holy place experience. We have three pieces of furniture. And bear with me, i got seven minutes to finish a whole page of notes so, in Acts chapter 26, verse 18. Actually, before I read this text, there on the right side, you have the table of showbread. And the table of showbread was six stacks of unleavened bread. And uh, this, it is interesting that the furniture in the, holy, uh, in the courtyard was all brass. 
And brass in the Bible also represents curse, so Christ taking the curse for me. But now in the holy place, everything is gold. And gold represents divinity and also pure faith. The trials of our faith is more precious than gold. And so, tried in the fire. So here we see this experience of this bread. And what does bread represent in the Bible? Who is the bread of life? Jesus is the bread of life. Everything here represents Jesus' experience, but also us following Jesus. So Jesus is that bread, but we also know what is also that bread. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every what? Word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And that was Matthew 4.4. 4. So what we see is that the table of showbread represents Christ, but also, also us partaking and eating of the bread. And bread is important for what? For physical strength, right? If you, if you just have exercise and you have just um, you have, uh, taken a shower, and, or maybe you went swimming or whatever, not, and then you took a shower, you feel all nice and clean, what usually happens to your appetite? You get hungry. Especially at being at the beach for some time, you get hungry. Oh, after we've, exp- we've been experiencing this cleansing of sin, Christ's righteousness is put on us, we need to now advance. And of course, we are experiencing the Word of God even before this, but the, what helps us in our sanctification is the Word of God. Look at what the Bible says, Acts 26, 18. Sancti- this, is not, this is the wrong text. This is actually Romans, is it 10, 17? I believe. Ag- Romans, or John 17, 17. Sorry. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. So what does God sanctify us? With the word of God. It teaches us to depend on Christ. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word. We can miss a meal or two, and that's okay. Sometimes we act like the whole world's going to die if I don't get my dinner or something. But no, we're not going to die. We need to learn to depend on Jesus Christ. And I would encourage you to study more into this, uh, this table of showbread because this table of showbread, the actual translation is actually table of the presence. And so it is also teaching us the presence of God. And I'm going to throw something out there just to stretch your minds a little bit. But you will also see this represents the throne of God as well. But you're going to have to study that on your own because I don't have enough time to go through that. But nevertheless, God wants us to be sanctified, even in Ephesians 5.26, that he might sanctify and cleanse us with the washing of water by the word. So here, the washing of water is also by the word of God. Look at what Desire of Ages, page 390, tells us. As our physical life is sustained by food, so is our spiritual life. It's sustained by the word of God. Every soul is to receive what? Life from God's word for himself. For who? Himself. This is what Pastor West Peppers was talking about today. Sometimes we rely so much on individuals and this ministry and that ministry that if you open your own Bible and you're all by yourself reading, you don't even know where to start. We need to have that personal experience with God. It's not wrong to listen to preachers. Otherwise, we wouldn't even be here today. No, there is a part to play, but we also need to go back now, go back home and test everything that I just said. I encourage you, everything that I've said, don't take my word for it. Write the quotations down. Take the Bible to say, Lord, I've heard it. It sounded good. I believe it, but make it my own. So as we eat for ourselves in order to receive nutrition, nutrition, nourishment, can I eat for my wife today or can she eat for me? Let's say I don't have any time. I'm busy today. So I tell my wife, just eat double for me. What good will it do me? Nothing. And she'll get a stomachache from overeating. So it doesn't do both of us good. We must receive it for ourselves. We are not to obtain it merely to the medium of another's mind. We should carefully what? Study the Bible. Asking God for who? The aid of the Holy Spirit that we may understand His word. We should take one verse and concentrate the mind on the task of asserting the thought which God has put in the verse for us. We should dwell upon the thought until it becomes our own and we know what saith the Lord. This is the experience of that table of showbread that God wants to give us. Dependence upon God in His Word and through the Holy Spirit. Then we find the next piece of furniture which is the altar of incense. 
Look at what the Bible tells us in Psalms 141, verse 2, what the incense represents. Let my prayer be set before thee as what? Incense. What is incense in the Bible representative of? Prayer. So in this experience, not only are we to study the word, but even when we study the word, we need to pray. Prayer is the second aspect that we see in the sanctuary. Those who claim to be sanctified while they have no desire to search the scriptures or to rest with God in what? Prayer. For a clear understanding of the Bible truth, know not what is what? True sanctification. So if we take the invert of this, what is true sanctification? Knowing and understanding clearly the Bible truths through studying the word and prayerfully experiencing communion with God. That's why we are to constantly be in communion. Let's continue moving on. The next article of furniture that teaches us about sanctification on the left side was the candlesticks made out of pure gold. And there in the candlesticks, in order for them to burn, the purpose of the candlesticks were to shine light but in order for them to burn, what did need to be filled with? Oil. And you can write this down. Zechariah chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. We don't have time to go there. But in this verse, you will find that oil is representative of who? The Holy Spirit. So God wants us in this experience to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And in Romans 5, 16, that I should be the minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, ministering the gospel of God, that offering up to the Gentiles might be acceptable, being sanctified by who? The Holy Ghost. Do you see how everything there in the uh, holy place is the experience of sanctification? We need to be walking and having a double portion of the Holy Spirit every day. And if you notice, the Holy Spirit is needed to understand the word. So all three of those are interconnected. But we also know this experience of the uh, candlesticks represents us shining our light. And we're going to talk about that later. That's shining the character of God, not through us, but because Jesus is living in us. And because of that, you know, when you, saw, when you see the candlesticks, if you read very carefully in Exodus, the whole candlesticks is made out of one piece of gold that was hammered out. What is the significance of that? And it's seven branches, but it's one main one and three going out. Well, seven represents completion, perfection, but we see unity in that description. Jesus is that main branch. And you, you and I are grafted in. We are connected to him. If we want to have true unity, we've got to be connected with who? Christ. And we are told in Hebrews 2, 11, for both he that's sanctified and they that who are sanctified are what? All of one. If you and I want to be united, it's not just in common goals. It's not just us being forgiven. we also got to be sanctified. If we're not experiencing sanctification individually, we're not going to be united. And so God wants us to be united just like the candlesticks, for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Praise be to God. Like I mentioned earlier, Jesus himself says, Ye are the light of the world, let your light shine. And see your good works so that they may glorify your Father. That's Matthew 5, 14 and all the way to 16. So God wanting us to shine his light. You see, I want to give you a quick illustration. Then we're going to be closing in a couple of minutes. And then we'll give you a break. And then we'll start the second presentation. When you look at this idea of justification and sanctification. The best way to describe it is an alcoholic. Let's say an alcoholic, he's so addicted that he's driving one day. His brain is not clear and he commits an accident. And he kills somebody in the car that he hits. And, be, and because of the state law, he is either life in prison or death. What is his sentence? Can he do anything to get out of it? No. If it's death row, he's done. There's nothing he can do. Like you and I, because we've sinned, we're on death row. But because of Jesus, he took the penalty. And it's like someone saying... You know what, man? You deserve to die because you killed that person. But you know what? I'm going to die in your place. You can go free. So the first problem of the man is taken care of, right? He's now justified. He's cleared of the guilty penalty that he has. But there's another problem. 
what is he still? He's still an alcoholic. So what might happen when he goes back to his old life? He might do the same stupid mistake. Get in a car, crash, and he's in the same thing. Likewise with us. God doesn't want us to keep, not just give us the title to heaven, but now he wants to think of preserve us in that experience. That keeping the alcoholic from drinking and taking him to maybe alcohol anonymous so that he can have the victory, that's like sanctification. God giving us the victory, preserving us in our justification. Justification, sanctification, they are like a coin, two sides that are together. Letters, page 202, 1902 by Ellen White. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jumping down, we stand before God. Oh, to those who are, whom God justifies, he imputes Christ's righteousness. For the Savior has taken away our sins. We stand before the throne of God justified and sanctified. Always together. We are emptied of self and through sanctification of truth, what abides in the heart? Christ. That's the experience of sanctification. The sanctuary doesn't end there. There's one more compartment. And this compartment is the most holy place. The holy place experience, we've been focusing on our experience, but that whole experience as well represents Jesus after his resurrection went into heaven, right? And he's our high priest. And just like the candlesticks represent the Holy Spirit, I believe also that holy place experience represents the early rain, Pentecost being fall. But now we see that Jesus moves into the most holy place and there is the throne of God. And there we have face-to-face communion with God. And this step we call glorification. But some get confused when we say glorification and that means character. Oh, that means our character is transformed there. But that can't be, right? Because just like we saw yesterday, we can't wait till the second coming. We can't wait till then to have our character transformed, our character is being transformed as we're being justified and sanctified. So what is this glorification in the most holy place that we're talking about? In 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. What we shall be. But we know that when He shall appear, we shall be what? Like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. Is this talking about character, or is this talking about physical transformation. This is talking about physical transformation. It is not about character, but I can't go into all the details, but please study that out on yourself. Glorification is the final finishing touch. We're like God in character already, but here's one thing, we're not like God yet. You and I still got this sinful human flesh. Our our brain is still messed up. God wants to give us a whole new body. And when I mean brain, I'm not talking about our character because our thoughts and feelings are being transformed already, but I'm talking about the actual brain itself, the physical brain. God wants to give us new physical appearance. And in 1 Corinthians, our last text, verses 51 to 51, 54, we shall all be changed and the dead shall be raised incorruptible. This corruptible must put on corruption. So what's going to happen when I will be like him? How am I going to be like him? I will receive incorruption or immortality. Because I've accepted the justification power of God, the sanctifying power being preserved, He will now put on the finishing touches at the resurrection, at the second coming, when He raises up the dead and those that are alive, still alive, they will be given physical immortality, physical new bodies. Isn't this beautiful how God has placed everything through the sanctuary? We have just followed Jesus all the way through. Right now, Jesus is in the most holy place in the, doing the Day of Atonement. He's our judge. And when he stands up from that, that's when he comes to, send, to take us home. I don't know about you, but I want to I be home with Jesus. But I don't have to wait till heaven to be home with Jesus. I can experience Christ today. If you have Jesus, you have everything. If you notice, the whole sanctuary is about who? Jesus. Praise God. I want to tell you a quick story and then I'll let you go. There's a story of a man, quite wealthy, wealthy man. He had many portraits, many pictures. Some of you have may have heard this story. He had all these different artists. He had the Picassos, the Rembrandts, all these beautiful f- pictures and paintings. 
And then one day his son went into the army and he was fighting as a good soldier. And the news came to the father one day that the son died in combat. And when the son dies in combat, one of his best friends comes back. He knocks on the door of this man, of the son's father. And he tells the father, I have some sad story to tell you. Your son is dead for fighting for our country. The father, of course, was in tears, but the man, the son, says, hey, I have a simple gift for you. And he shows this very simple picture of the picture of his son, something that he had drawn. He says, I know it's nothing, but just to remember your son because he was my best friend. I want to give you this picture. And so he takes the picture, and the father every day looks at that picture. He loves that picture because it reminds him of his son. Every day he loves it. Not even the other pictures were that interesting to him, even though it was so plain, just a sketch drawing. One day the man dies and all his estates are being auctioned out. And so he auctions out, the auction begins. And they said, we have all these beautiful paintings and these things that are going to be auctioned, but before we do that, we got to show you this sketch. So they show this picture of the sun. Oh, and the people were just in uproar. What is this rubbish? We want the Picasso. What is this stupid sketch? So the auctioneer is like, anyone, $10. Anybody, 15 Nobody's bidding. People are angry. They want to throw tomatoes at the auctioneer. And the man says, no, I cannot continue. I got to stay on this painting. Once this goes, then we'll get on with business. There was a, one of the men that was working, either the butler or the farmer, for this father, knew how important this picture was. And he decides, you know what? This was such a wonderful man to work with. He loved his son. I know how much that painting meant to him. So you know what? I only have $10. I'm going to give this $10 for that painting. So he, he says, okay, I'll bid for $10. And people are like, oh, praise God. You know, it's over. Well, now we can get to the big stuff, the Picassos. And then the auctioneer says, okay, sold to the man in the back for $10. And then the auctioneer is walking out. And everyone is like, what is going on? And he says, According to the will of the Father, he that had the picture of the Son gets his whole estate, gets everything that he has. Brothers and sisters, he that has the Son of Righteousness, Jesus Christ, has everything. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your Son. Thank you for giving us your Son not only for our justification, but for our sanctification and even for our glorification. Lord, thank you that he is now, even now, in the most holy place, interceding in our behalf. Lord, please, may the things that we've been studying about, may not they only be head knowledge, but that we have this practical experience. May our hearts be transformed by your power. Thank you, Father, for hearing and answering. And bring us back in a couple minutes. In Jesus' name I pray. This message was recorded by Fountain View Productions for GYC. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources, visit us online at gycweb.org.